Okay, this is Bill Giovanetti, and this is the God Stuff Podcast, where we go bigger, better, and deeper, a bigger impact for Christ and His kingdom, a better understanding of Scripture, how to use, apply it, and teach it, and a deeper walk with God through this wonderful thing called theology. This is episode 150, and today we're going to talk about revival. So let's just call that bigger. We want a bigger impact for Christ and the gospel, and revival is one of the key ways that God brings that about. I hope you saw the Jesus Revolution movie. If you did not see the Jesus Revolution movie, go see it or go rent it, depending on when you listen to this. It is the best Christian movie I've ever seen, and I think it's one of the most important movies, period, of our generation. The Jesus Revolution movie chronicles the story of both Chuck Smith and Greg Laurie, but even more so, of what some are calling the fourth great awakening in America, the fourth major national revival, which is the Jesus Revolution movement of the 1970s. So, go see it. It will warm your heart. I've seen it uh, now four times. I've seen it with students. I've seen it with on my own. And it's just, it has really impacted everyone that I know who has seen it. So go see Jesus Revolution. So I'm saying that because I want to give you two podcasts about revival. This is Revival Part 1, and then in the next episode, 151, we'll talk Revival Part 2. And these are messages that I preached during COVID and during the COVID lockdowns as a church. And in this first message, this first sermon, these were preached at Pathway Church in 20, is it 21, 22, I forget. But in this first message, I go through the three great awakenings historically. These were um, in the mid-1700s under Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, the first great Awakening. Then in the early 1800s, the Second Great Awakening, the camp meetings, Peter Cartwright. And then in the mid 1800s, the Third Great Awakening called the Layman's Revival, also called the Quiet Revival, which is basically based on prayer. Super cool. I'm going to tell the stories of those awakenings, but most importantly, what happened. And I cannot emphasize this enough because I know things are going on in Asbury, Cedarville University, Texas A&M. I know that God is being glorified. There's a renewal of the church, but it isn't revival until we see unusually large numbers of people getting saved. And that is what I'm going to talk about today in the podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. If you do enjoy it, please subscribe to the God Stuff podcast, share it, let other people know about it. You can subscribe uh, as a podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, but also we do have these podcasts on YouTube. So go check us out there and subscribe there as well and share, let other people know. And if you have a chance to leave a review, that would be awesome. But let's pray for revival. Let's hope for revival. And let's just believe that God's going to do great things. As always, go check us out over at veritasschool.life, V-E-R-I-T-A-S school. Life. If you add slash salvation, you can get a free theology course, a free uh, introductory course, and you can just take your bland, boring Christian life and put some energy into it and some depth. Veritas School.life slash salvation. So here we go. Let's talk revival. This is part one. Welcome to the God Stuff Podcast with Bill Giovanetti, the home of grace powered living, because grace isn't an app, it's an operating system. Here's Bill. Well, today is part four in our series, A High-Intensity Summer. If you didn't catch the first few parts, you can catch up by going to our website at pathwaychurch.life. If you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll get there in just a few minutes. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, way toward the back of your Bible, there are four books that begin with T, and they're all together, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and you want Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. We live in very intense 
times. The news is intense. Dealing with this virus is intense. Politics is intense. Social media is intense. Doing business, people's emotions right now, rates of anxiety are up. Rates of depression and suicide have, said to say, have tripled. Domestic abuse is up. We live in an age of anxiety. It is a very intense time to be alive. To be alive. So how should we as the church how should we as the people of God respond to this? Do we take a break? No, we don't take a break. We lean in because when the devil turns up the heat, we turn up the mission. This is how it goes. And this is why we at Pathway are doing this high intensity summer. We just refuse to coast. I want to read a couple of Bible verses here at the beginning before I really get into my topic, and I want to explain why I picked these verses and why I think something needs to happen to rescue us from the condition that we're in. So we're going to start with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Wow, I did some research on the background of this first historical background when St. Paul wrote this verse, and I discovered that St. Paul wrote these words of scripture after spending 20 minutes on Instagram and Facebook. Perilous times. Now, the word perilous means savage. It means fierce, and it is due to the casting off of restraints. Perilous, unrestrained times. In part one of this high-intensity summer series, we saw that the devil is subtle. He's locked into incognito mode. In part two, we showed how the devil works through lies in order to brainwash entire societies and cultures and people groups through the doctrines of demons. It's all biblical. You could go back and watch the videos. In part three, we saw that the whole cosmos, the whole world system is driving drunk under the influence of Satan. This is what the Bible teaches about the arrangements and the philosophy and the spirit of the world. And th this is why we are in perilous times. And it's because we are in the last times and we are saturated with evil. I believe that we as a society have already reached a tipping point. Nothing can fix society. Nothing can fix our world. There is no human solution. There is no cultural fix. No politician can help us. I don't care what side you find yourself on. No legislation can turn the tide. No court rulings. No medical discoveries. No group consensus. No election. No program. No amount of throwing money at the problems or into this ecosystem. Nothing. Nothing can fix where we're at. Now, I'm not saying to give up. I'm, I'm not even saying to give up on the things I just mentioned in that list. What I am saying is that we as a culture have reached a tipping point of evil masquerading as good without God. Morally, spiritually, economically, politically, sexually, 
culturally, philosophically, in every dimension and aspect you can think of. We cannot turn the clock back. We cannot get back our old normal to replace this horrible new normal we have created. Humanly speaking, as I look at it, as a pastor, as a guy who's been around the block a few times, the situation is completely hopeless. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Now, I am not trying to bring you down. I am trying to speak truth and reality into this situation. Humanly hopeless. Humanly impossible. But that's not my message today. God has brought me here today to remind you that nothing is impossible with God. Amen? There is a way back. And the way back is in a second scripture I'd like to show you. And if there's ever a scripture for you to underline or mark up in your Bible, it's 2 Chronicles 7.14. This is toward the front part of your Bible. Bunch of books of the Bible that begin with numbers. And this is the last of them. 2 Chronicles 7.14, where God says, If my people who are called by my name, that's us, that's the church, that's the people of God, that's Christians. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That is our hope. God doing it. We can't fix this, but God can. And that's what I want to talk about today. The only power that can restore our land is the power of God. And what this verse and many, many other verses in the Bible are talking about is a topic that has a name. And the name for the topic is the name for my sermon today, which is revival. I want to talk about revival. Revival. Okay. Now, a lot of Christians have heard the word revival. To most of us, the word sounds like some kind of relic of the past. You know, it's right up here with buggy whips and rotary phones. But revival is a really important and central theological concept. It is in both Testaments of the Bible. As I see things, the only hope for America, for our culture, for our society, for our kids and our grandkids right now, revival is our only hope. So I want to talk about revival. I want to do it for a couple of weekends. For the rest of our time today, I want to tell some stories of the history of revival in America. And then next time, I want to go deep with the theology of revival and construct that with you and put that together with you from Scripture. So first, a quick definition. When we talk about revival, what are we talking about? And here's a definition Here's how I define revival. Revival is a sudden and intense work of God in the church, so startling that it grabs the attention of the onlooking world, resulting in unusually large numbers of lost people coming to faith in Christ. If you don't have all of those elements, you don't have revival. And it was revival that molded American history and molded American culture to make us the most free and the most prosperous nation that has ever existed in history. That happened through revival. Historians will say that uh, the, our country has experienced three nationwide, three American revivals, and they're called the Three Great Awakenings. I want to just give you a few snippets of stories from the Three Great Awakenings, starting with the First Great Awakening, which happened before our country was a country, 1740, 1742. When the first pilgrims came to America, they were strong believers in Christ. 
They were mainly Puritans, but they were strong believers in Jesus Christ. And they saw this land as a new promised land. They determined to establish a society founded on the word of God. And they did. But as time went on and as their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren grew up, as time went on, the spiritual enthusiasm of the pilgrims began to go downhill. And uh, there was increased wealth and there were new generations who did not know the persecutions back in Europe that the pilgrims escaped by getting on boats and hazarding the sea voyage to the new world. Um, there was an over-familiarity with things of Christ. And all of these things began to blunt the spiritual edge. And American culture at that time, before there was even a United States, the colonies lost interest in Christ. By 1679, there were, there were meetings of pastors. In fact, a group of pastors met in Boston. They were discussing the necessity of reformation. They were discussing the evils that had, and these are their words, that had provoked the Lord to turn his judgments on New England. So they were already fretting over this. The pastors could see this happening. By the early 1700s, a Boston preacher observed, alas, as though nothing but the most amazing thunders and lightnings and the most terrible earthquakes could awaken us spiritually. We are at this time fallen into as dead a sleep as ever. This was the condition of the American colonies before the revolution. America was not even close to being anything like a Christian nation. In fact, the people of the land here, the Europeans that had settled here, were a bunch of irreligious pagans. Into that bleak scene, God brought up a pastor, and you might have heard the name of Jonathan Edwards. This is Jonathan Edwards. He was probably one of the first intellectuals of real note here in uh, in America. Edwards received his theological training at what would become Yale University, and he became a pastor in Massachusetts. Edwards, as a pastor, had a practice of spending 13 or 14 hours a day in Bible study and prayer. As a result of his ministry, God began to shake up his church with a spiritual awakening. In 1733, Edwards preached a series of sermons on, and I want you to get this, it was a series of sermons on the doctrine of justification by faith. He wasn't preaching on the Holy Spirit, he wasn't preaching on revival, he was preaching the gospel, justification by faith, 1733. By the end of the year, he wrote in his diary, the Spirit of God began extraordinarily to set in. God had, become, God had begun something remarkable within the church among God's own people, true believers, and the work of the Spirit of God in Jonathan Edwards' church was powerful. Now, this guy was not a flashy preacher. Edwards' sermons were really detailed, really doctrinal, really heavy and meaty. You can Google them. They're online. I have all the works of Jonathan Edwards in the book, a couple of volumes, but you can Google them. You can see for yourself, his sermons were philosophical. His sermons were really, really profound. And when, Sir, when Edwards preached, he wasn't like this dynamic, explosive preacher. He was really boring. He wrote out his sermons, like some of us have been known to do, in a manuscript form. And because he was nearsighted, he would hold a candle and 
get way over his pulpit so he could read his own sermons. And he was monotonous. I mean, this guy would not have been hired by any megachurch today. Hardly the dynamic, energetic, visionary leader preacher. And yet God used him in incredible ways. When Jonathan Edwards was preaching, unbelievers who were in the church would begin to cry out in agony of conscience because the Holy Spirit was convicting them of sin. There were people in the pews who would literally pass out. Others would clutch their pews in desperation because they were terrified that God would split open the earth and swallow them to hell right then and there for their sin and for not believing in Christ. And here's here's this guy just kind of droning on from the pulpit and God taking truth and by the Spirit of God and in his sovereign move of God doing something amazing. There were so many people saved that Jonathan Edwards wrote, and this is quoting, souls did, as it were, come by floods to Jesus Christ. Remarkably large numbers of people were saved. And that's what makes it revival. It's not revival unless this happens. Well, the revival began to spread throughout Massachusetts into Connecticut then. The revival peaked under the ministry of an itinerant evangelist. You may have heard of George Whitfield. This is Whitfield, uh, sometimes spelled like Whitefield, but it's George Whitfield who preached both in uh, England and the U.S. Whitfield was an open-air preacher. He would go to these places, set up a podium, and announce a time, and thousands of people came. It was said that George Whitfield could preach to 20,000 people at a time outside in the open air without a microphone or a PA system. Imagine that. Imagine the lung power to project a voice to 20,000 people. No microphones, no amps, no speakers. This is George Whitfield. George Whitfield was financed, and this is going to surprise you, many times by, wait for it, Benjamin Franklin, who didn't even really practice Christianity. But Franklin uh, said that Whitfield was the only preacher who could bring him to tears and was the only preacher who could get him to open his pocketbook and give money. Because Whitfield not only went around preaching the gospel, he went around opening orphanages. That is one of his enduring legacies. Well, revival spread to Boston and other places. Churches were packed. They had to hold church services in homes. Sound familiar? Revival spread to New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia. And there was tremendous fruit from this. One of the fruits of the First Great Awakening was this new passion for evangelism. That wasn't happening before, but now they wanted to see people saved. And they began sending out missionaries. Another result of the First Great Awakening was cooperation among denominations. They began forming colleges to train pastors because the country was expanding so rapidly they needed new pastors for new churches. So they formed universities like, let's see, Princeton, Columbia, Brown, Rutgers, Dartmouth, all these schools were opened with the express purpose. They were, they were started by Christians. They were funded by Christians to prepare pastors for the expanding frontier. The Great Awakening also created among the people of God a concern for justice. And especially in this regard, the abolition of slavery. It was Christians who in England led in the movement to abolish slavery. And it was the first great awakening that planted the seeds of abolition in America, which wouldn't sprout for decades later. Jonathan Edwards wrote, 
There was scarcely a single person in the town, old or young, left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. This is my prayer for Redding, California, and Shasta County. People are just ignoring the unseen things of the spiritual world. Lord, send revival. Those who were wont or commonly used to being the vainest and loosest and those who had been the most disposed to think and speak slightly of vital and experimental, meaning experiential religion, were now generally subject to great awakenings. And the work of conversion was carried on in a most astonishing manner and increased more and more. Souls did, as it were, come by floods, it should say, to Jesus Christ. The town seemed to be full of the presence of God. Make it so, Lord Jesus. True revival is a gut punch to the devil. And so it was in the first great awakening. Well, time went on and spiritual interests, you know, went downhill. And that led to the second great awakening, 1800, 1825. The first great awakening, like all revivals, subsided. Churches returned to business as usual. And look, between these awakenings, we have to do what we're called to do. We're still on mission. The country grew rapidly. The frontier pushed westward. The leading edge, uh, the frontier of America was lawless and irreligious. And it was legalized prostitution, legalized uh, well, criminality, it was violent. Everybody solved their problems with guns and lynchings. By the 1800s, the philosophies of rationalism were popular. Rousseau, Voltaire, Paine, Locke, they were exercising tremendous influence on how cultured society thought out east, while out west, it was a war. Thomas Paine, an atheist, predicted Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years. And I'll bet that a lot of you have forgotten Thomas Paine and Christianity is still around. Uh, whereas a previous generation at least demonstrated a reverence for God, with the rise of rationalism, even that disappeared. The status of Christianity was very low, very depressed, not unlike our era today. Sound familiar? And the seminaries, especially all these Christian seminaries, were already in trouble. Lyman Beecher of Yale Divinity School, and this is the divinity school to prepare pastors said the college was in a most ungodly state. The college church was almost extinct. Most of the seminary students before me were unbelievers and they had nicknamed each other Voltaire, Rousseau, and on and on. They were nicknaming each other after famous atheistic philosophers. Is that the seminary you want to go to? Another pastor of that day wrote, the state of religion is gloomy and distressing. The church of Christ seems to be sunk very low. And I just want to remind you, Christianity is never more than one generation from extinction. Now, there were many pastors who were concerned. They were aware of the desperate need for pastors on the expanding frontier. They made it a priority to recapture Yale for Christ. So a grandson of Jonathan Edwards was made president of Yale. This is just before 1800. His name was Timothy Dwight. Yale was formed to train pastors, yet now it had become like a citadel of anti-Christian belief and unbelief. In 1802, Dwight led two very influential seniors, senior age students in the seminary to Christ. And they were so excited, they got up and shared their testimony. And many of these other unbelieving seminary students came to Christ too. And conviction multiplied. And young college students and future pastors were lit on fire by the Lord. I want to say 
that revival is the work of God. No one can predict it. There's no, I can't say here are five steps to revival. But some would say that. That's not biblical. It's a sovereign work of God. And God began in this year through those two young men who came to Christ, a revival. More and more students at Yale became Christian. And then they began to fan out. As they fanned out across the land, they carried the story of a spiritual awakening at Yale University. That university spread from Yale to Dartmouth and then to Princeton. Eventually, even Harvard was returned to historic Christian roots. Wouldn't that be a miracle today? And a generation of young leaders was lit on fire by God. They would carry this spark of revival throughout the growing countryside. I mean, can you imagine if the Ivy League schools again began proclaiming the name of Christ? If you even look at their mottos and their seals, they are a Christian from their inception. God has done this before. God did the impossible before. He did this in the Second Great Awakening. He can do it again. And I'm praying that he does. I'm sure you are too. Well, the population was expanding at an unprecedented rate into Kentucky, Tennessee, Louisiana, and the West. New towns were springing up almost overnight. Eastern churches emptied out as congregations traveled West. So how could we keep up? How could the gospel of Christ possibly keep pace with the growth of the nation? Well, the answer was only through revival, and that's exactly what God sent. The second great awakening made the first great awakening, which was remarkable and really established America on Christian foundations. By the way, the first great awakening is why the founders of America were so Christian and embedded so much biblical truth into our founding documents. But the second great awakening made the first one look like a Sunday school picnic. The first great awakening lasted only three to five years. The second great awakening lasted upwards of 25 years. The first great awakening was confined mostly to eastern towns, Boston, Philadelphia, and New England colonies. The second great awakening affected both the eastern towns and the western frontier. It affected universities, and it affected the, the rugged West. Uh, there was one seminary president, Gardner Spring, who wrote, From the time I entered the college in 1800 down to the year 1825, there was an uninterrupted series of these celestial visitations spreading over different parts of the land. During the whole of these 25 years, there was not a month in which we could not point to some village, some city, some seminary of learning and say, behold what God hath wrought. God was moving from town to town, from institution to institution, and God was changing them. God was finding intense saturations of evil and turning them around. There are historical records of cities where one where uh, observer said, I was here a year ago. I drove through town. It was, I rode through town on my horse. It was nothing but violence, nothing but drunkenness, nothing but lawlessness, nothing but, you know, prostitution and immorality. I come through today, revival has swept through, and now the saloon has gone out of business. No legislators had to shut it down. The brothels have gone out of business. And all I hear as I ride through town is the singing of hymns as families gather around the table to worship the Lord. Well, in the East, the revival was centered in colleges, college towns, seminaries. Out in the wild, wild West, it was centered in what was called Camp meetings. Camp meetings were huge in the West. Here's what that was, okay? Camp meetings were open-air meetings 
where thousands and thousands of people would crowd in to hear a series of pastors or preachers come and give messages. Camp meetings were large gatherings at which people camped. They would come and camp. They would come up in a covered wagon or whatever they had, and they would stay there. And many preachers would fan out. They would preach in a corner here, or a large group here, or big gatherings there. The most famous of these camp meetings is called the Cane Ridge Camp Meetings in August 1801, and this is in Kentucky. It's Logan County, Kentucky. The meetings were held in this really, really spiritually dark place. Logan County. Here's a description of Logan County, Kentucky. A rogue's harbor. An observer wrote, here, many refugees from almost all parts of the Union fled to escape justice or punishment, murderers, horse thieves, highway robbers, and counterfeiters fled here until they combined and actually formed a majority. Sounds like some cities we see on the news right now. Laying the groundwork for the Cane Ridge camp meetings, there was a circuit-riding preacher. His name was James McCready. Oh, here's another camp meeting. Thousands of people. These are drawings, but thousands of people. James McCready, who was a preacher in the 1800s. He preached to rough-and-tumble audiences. It was said that James McCready could speak of heaven so graphically that hard-hearted hearers would long to immediately be there. When he preached of hell, one listener later recounted that McCready could, and I'm quoting, so array hell and its horrors before the wicked that they would tremble and quake, imagining a lake of fire and brimstone yawning to overwhelm them, and the wrath of God thrusting them down to the horrible abyss. Now, let's just pause there and look. We believe in heaven and hell. We believe in eternal destinies. We don't talk like this today. Maybe we should. Maybe if we would, we would turn off more people than we open up to the gospel. But this is what God was using in that day. The meetings grew until in 1801, estimates at the Cane Ridge meetings said that there were between 10,000 and 25,000 people in this continuous cycle of meetings. People always coming and going. 25,000 people. And the remarkable fact is that at that time, the biggest city in Kentucky had 1,800 inhabitants. One report says, quote, the roads were crowded with wagons, carriages, horses, and footmen moving to the solemn camp. And these were solemn meetings. This is not flash. This is not razzle-dazzle. This is not manipulation. Perhaps a central figure in the West during the Second Great Awakening was one of my all-time favorite preachers named Peter Cartwright. Peter Cartwright is the epitome of the rugged circuit-riding preacher. He had received Christ at a camp meeting. He had no formal education. He began preaching when he was 16 years old, and he kept at it for over 40 years. Think about that. Being a circuit rider meant never knowing where he would sleep. All he had for his books were a Bible and a hymnal. That was his library, and he had to rough it up every once in a while. So I brought show and tell today. I have the autobiography of Peter Cartwright. This book was published in 1856. This is an 1856 edition of the autobiography of Peter Cartwright. This picture that I put here is from the flyleaf of the book. It's the best picture that I'm going to make sure it gets on the internet from 
of Peter Cartwright. It's called An Autobiography of Peter Cartwright, the Backwoods Preacher, and uh, published by Carlton and Porter, 1856. Reading this book is like binge-watching Bonanza. I mean, it's all Western frontier excitement. Cartwright says in here, we walked on dirt floors for carpets, had forked sticks and pocket knives for knives and forks, slept on bear, deer, and buffalo skins before the fire, or sometimes on the ground in open air. One new suit of clothes of homespun was ample clothing for a year. That was his pastor's salary. Uh, it was said that Peter Cartwright had a booming voice. He could make strong men tremble and men and women weep. The Wild West needed a strong figure, and Cartwright provided just that. It said also that Peter Cartwright was a one-verse preacher. He preached thousands of times on one verse. John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Many times when he would preach, the audience would get feisty and start heckling him, and he had to resort to fist fights. He'd go out in the audience and punch a guy in the face and fight the troublemakers. Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, I gotta go have a fight. For decades, Cartwright went around the wild, wild west organizing camp meetings. Peter Cartwright lived well into his 90s, long enough to watch the wilderness become settled. He preached over 14,600 sermons, and he personally led over 10,000 people to the Lord Jesus Christ. He contributed greatly to the salvation of the American West. He helped launch a worldwide missionary movement, and he built, with his own hands and his own tools, hundreds of churches. I am saying that when a culture and when a society are saturated with evil, God can raise up the most unlikely heroes as instruments through which he brings revival. And God can do in a minute what no amount of politics and programs and strategies could accomplish in decades. Lord send revival. This was the second great awakening. How are you doing? You with me so far? It's kind of like uh, seminary class. Well, once again, the second awakening began to fade. And by the way, we don't live in a constant state of revival. I'm going to talk about this next week. Revival is extraordinary punctuated periods of history. And the second great awakening, like all awakenings, faded and the churches began a downward slide. And this leads us to the third of the three great awakenings, 1857 through 1858. The third great awakening is often called the quiet revival, the quiet revival. And this is also called the layman's revival. It only lasted two years. Two, three years. Once again, American Christianity was kind of eh, mediocre. In 1857, there was a stock market crash. The financial markets collapsed. Banks went out of business. Railroads went out of business. The monetary system was on the brink of collapse. Jobs were scarce. And the average working American was facing tremendous pressure. A young man, his name was Jeremiah Lanfear, and he was a businessman. Jeremiah Lanfear, okay? launched a prayer meeting in New York, New York City, and he borrowed the basement of a church. His pastor was out of town. Lanfear figured, ah, he won't mind. So in the basement of a New York church, Jeremiah Lanfear just announced, he's a businessman, we're going to have a prayer meeting. Anybody who wants to come at noon and pray, come at noon and pray. His purpose was just to seek God's mercy in the midst of this financial crisis. Jeremiah Lanfear sent out invitations to pray on September 23, 1857 at noon. On that day, he went into that room after sending out invitations, and Lanfear found himself all alone. Nobody had come. Finally, by about 12.30, five more people trickled in, and they prayed. 
The next week, the meeting grew to 20 and then to 40. And all of this was led by, not by pastors or church leaders, it's regular everyday people in the church. It was decided to hold prayer meetings then every single day. Soon, that room was packed and a second room in the church was used. Gradually, the meetings outgrew the church. They went to a theater that could seat 3,000 people where a few people would get up and just lead out in prayer for their community. By March 1858, that prayer meeting in an auditorium of 3,000 was packed. By April, there were now countless buildings across New York. Theaters, churches, print shops, fire stations, police stations were all opened up for noontime prayer meetings. And they all followed the same form. Lay people leading, taking turns praying. Just the hearts of believers from all denominations melted together in prayer. After that, prayer meetings sprang up in Boston, Philadelphia, New York, elsewhere, all up and down the Atlantic coast. God was doing something remarkable within the church, which is the first part of revival, so startling that unbelievers outside the church take notice and something happens to them. And it did. In this third great awakening, conversations were soon reported. As a result of these packed out prayer meetings, churches were crowded and souls were saved. It is estimated that in New York alone, over 50,000 people came to Christ. One of the historians of this time wrote, the phenomenon of packed churches and startling conversions was noted everywhere from Texas in the south to the extreme of our western boundaries and our eastern limits. Their influence is felt by every denomination. The revival first captured the great cities, but it was also spread through every town and village and country hamlet. It swamped schools and colleges. It affected all classes without respect to condition. There was no fanaticism. It seemed to many that the fruits of Pentecost had been repeated a thousandfold. At any rate, the number of conversions reported soon reached a total of 50,000 weekly a figure borne out by the fact that the church statistics show an average of 10,000 additions to the church membership weekly for the period of two years. That was 143 years ago. There has been no national revival in America since then. Revival cannot be manufactured, cannot be created, cannot be predicted. Revival is a sovereign work of God in his own place and his own time. We cannot put it on the schedule, or God forbid, we cannot and should not ever try to manipulate one into happening. But we can ask God, and we can pray for souls, and we can seek, and this is our high-intensity summer. We can lay again the foundation of Reformation doctrines. Edwards preached justification by faith and revival broke out. So that revival has something to stand on. There's absolutely no way that human power, ingenuity, or strategizing or planning can fix what's wrong with our country. Only God, only God, only God coming down, only God pouring out his spirit in revival. You can't sing your way into it. You can't emote your way into it. You can't force yourself into it. God does this. It's got to come from above. He has the power. The central doctrinal truth of revival is that God is the absolute monarch of the human heart. And in revival, he turns hearts to himself first in the church in such remarkable ways that the unbelieving world is drawn in and comes to Christ in astonishing numbers. My prayer in this 
series is to create a conception of revival. Well, first to create a conception of the mess we're in. We're in a world system dominated by demonic lies. But then to create a conception of revival and stir your heart to pray for revival. And I love that America's three great awakenings were all different. The first great awakening used scholars like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. It was emotional without being fantastic. The second great awakening featured rough and tumble circuit riding preachers like Peter Cartwright. It was emotional and there were there was a lot of turmoil in that one. The third great awakening was led by volunteers, lay leaders, beginning with Jeremiah Lanfear. It was neither emotional nor fantastic. It was just quiet. In each case, God did something different. God did what he saw fit. God was in charge. God was sovereign. God took over and used all different kinds of people to serve his will. Educated, uneducated, articulate, stammering, young, old, and men and women of all financial strata of society and all the plans and all the efforts of all the churches receded into the background because God is full of surprises and you can neither confine him nor tame him. God becomes all and all in all. And the last thing I'll say is that revival is God's knockout blow to the devil's schemes for a culture. And it is what we need. Can we create it? Absolutely not but we can be ready for it and we can seek it and we can pray for it and we can consecrate our lives to the Lord and we can pray for our own church and our own selves, but also for our neighbors. We need you to step up for this, but until, and we can serve him and serve the world by serving Christ and we can reach out across oceans to Thailand and places like that. And we can bring in speakers and we can share the gospel and try to reach everybody with, with the gospel of Christ. Until God sends revival, our job is to just be faithful in ordinary days. The church has extraordinary days and ordinary days. Most of them are ordinary. And our job is to be faithful in the ordinary days, even as we pray for the day when the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen? We'll talk more about this next time. Let's pray together. Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the earth might tremble at your presence. Lord, that you would send revival. We have heard of you, but Lord, we long that we would see your hand of blessing as you reach out to Redding, California, Pathway Church, Shasta County, and the regions where every person who's hearing my voice today is located. I, I pray, Lord, that you would send revival. I, I don't know what means you use. I don't know how to bring it about. Lord, we'll do what we can to be faithful to the mission on which, which you have set us. But until you send revival, Lord, there's no hope for our land. You've done it before. Do it again, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We've got a song for you, and during this song, we'll invite you to participate in what God is doing at our church through giving, and then I'm coming back with some awesome announcements and some cool surprises about what God has next for us at Pathway Church, so stick around. Well, we end our service by saying great God all together. Thank you so much for coming today. Don't forget as you go through your week that you have a great God. He is with you every step you take, and the joy of the Lord is your strength. Have a good week. We'll see you next time. Go visit pathwaychurch.life. Thanks for listening to the God Stuff Podcast. Find out more at godstuff.tv.